The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. My talk today is called, You Can Go on Retreat from Mindlessness at Any Time. So I'd like to ask how many of you, I know one of you, how many of you have been on a meditation retreat? Just raise your hand if you would. Ah, good, good. I found that on a retreat I just, we just returned from actually in October, the first ever long retreat that we've done. It was a six-week retreat. It was actually two six-week retreats back-to-back in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it was such a profoundly important experience that when Andre asked me to speak this morning, I realized that what I wanted to do was spend time thinking about that experience and also in um, saying what are the things that call out, what's the value of retreat practice and why do we do retreat practice? Because some of you might have fear, wishing you could, whatever about it. And so from my perspective, uh, I thought it would be interesting to maybe talk a little bit about it and then certainly leave some time for questions at the end. So um, we'll go on the personal side of things, like how, what I actually experienced, and also what's the more general things that one can experience on retreat. So what do we set aside? In Buddhism, the word renunciation is used a lot. But the word renunciation, to me, has this sort of a dour, grim feeling to it in general. And it's like renouncing. You know, you're giving something up. And you usually think, oh, if I'm giving it up, it must be something really terrific, you know? So, so, but I think to say, what do we set aside? And then we can pick it up. The Buddha said, it said he said, nothing was written during his lifetime, as you may or may not know. Nothing was written until about six, seven hundred years after he died. But there was a lot of chanting and, and monks carrying on the word in a verbal way. So... Setting aside is something, the, the indication of setting aside is we can pick it up again, right? If we set it aside, we can pick it up. So it doesn't go away forever. So what do we set aside? We set aside speaking almost completely. We set aside our appearance items. We don't go there and get all dressed up with you know, lots of makeup and lots of jewelry and clothing that's kind of... Uh, Street clothing, we might just wear sweats, you know, something like that. We don't, get, we don't worry about that kind of thing. We set aside, and this might sound good to some of you, work responsibilities, but also the identity that goes with work. Some of you may volunteer. You'd be giving that up, setting aside temporarily. So there's certain elements that come with our work and our um, activities of, of uh, work-type things that we're letting go of for that time. The comforts at home, all the comforts that we have at home. Our food and drink preferences. At Spirit Rock, there used to be a little sign over by the kitchen, and it said, if you don't care for the food, it's your practice. If you like the food, it's our practice to have given it to you. So it's kind of like, you know, you you take what's given. Now, if somebody has a food allergy or an issue where they really cannot or need to eat certain things, then that is certainly accommodated for. And there's always a refrigerator there for those who need that kind, maybe a special chilling of something or whatever. So it's not like it's completely, you know, never thought about if somebody might have an issue with food or drink. We give up entertainment. 
Entertainment means maybe something as simple as reading, TV, all the elements of uh, movies, plays. One of my very strong loves is going to plays. That goes away. Temporarily, once again, we, we set it aside. Um, freedom to come and go. So you're there, you're there. And certainly there are people who leave. <laughs> you know, during the retreat, that happens. Um, but in general, you make a decision. You're going to stay there for the duration. We uh, give up the internet. And I take that one separately, only because I know for me and for most people, it's kind of our connection. It's a really strong, important connection for us with our, our friends, with the news, etc., and all the trappings of that that go with it. <clears throat> there are lots of trappings, whether it be Twitter or, you know, the, all these various things that get us kind of excited about getting into the Internet. We also will, will take, in a Buddhist retreat, the five precepts. The monks were handed to them a group of well over 200 precepts, things to live by. It's called the Vinaya, V-I-N-A-Y-A, we have a copy of the Vinaya. It's two, columns, two, two volumes about this thick a piece that the Buddha and maybe ongoing other people came up with these precepts for the monks. <clears throat> we take the first five. They are not killing, not taking what is not freely given to you, um, not engaging in any kind of speech that's uh, mindless or, or not totally necessary, um, non, uh, let's see, the other two. Oh, any kind of sexual misconduct and the taking of any type of intoxicants. That's not, it's things that dull the mind is what it's, many, the teachers will say it in different ways and one of the ways it says is anything that would dull the mind. So those are the five precepts. Some people take eight precepts, which includes not sleeping on high beds, <laughs> And I guess in the time of the Buddha, that was a big deal, that if somebody you know, didn't sleep on the floor, they slept on a high bed. I don't know what exactly you picture with that. You know. But anyway, that's, that's the terminology. Um, not eating from noon until dawn of the next day. And thirdly, um, excessive jewelry and dancing and enter- <clears throat> excuse me, entertainments and such. So those are the eight precepts. It also goes on to ten, et cetera, et cetera. But that gives you an idea. Now, the good thing about those precepts, to me, is that they really get you to kind of see when things are missing that you don't have, what does that feel like, first of all, but also many of them make you feel safer. If you know, and literally, I've placed things, you know, misplaced them at a retreat, and then I'll find it later in a very odd place or something, people don't take other people's things there. It just doesn't happen unless you're asked. So it's a lovely thing to know that that's going to happen. Interestingly, in Japan, it's an amazing place. I don't know if it comes as a result of the Zen influence or what, but I went to Japan once in my life for three weeks, and you could leave your suitcase. This is the year 2001, by the way. I don't know about now. But I left my suitcase outside the public restroom many, 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 many times, because I didn't want to drag it in there, and I never had any problem with it. So nobody ever took it or took anything, and it was really a lovely... You feel a freedom, an an amazing freedom with something like that, of knowing you're not going to be harmed either by having something taken from you that you haven't given somebody, or fear, that type of thing. So it's a very positive thing that happens. 
So what do we get in response to each one of those things? Silence. If we're not going to speak or have entertainments, just the silence is an amazing thing to have. Most retreats are in a more faraway place. Not always. The retreat that we were just on, the six-week retreat, we found out after we got there, there was going to be some construction. So you can have this image of what's going to happen, and then you learn what happens when it doesn't happen the way you thought it was going to happen. For two weeks, there was major construction at IMS, including bulldozers and you know, pile driver type things. They were extending a parking lot. They didn't know when those people were com- going to come, which is why we didn't know this was going to happen. And they also thought it was going to last for two days when it did happen, but it actually lasted for two weeks. So I had this amazing experience of what came to me was, I can't believe they did this to us. Why didn't they tell us that we were going to have two weeks of construction? And I went into this whole thing inside. Once again, remember, it's pretty much silence, so you really have to manage your own thoughts here. And after about the first week, I thought, I can't handle this. You know, this is just unbelievable. And I thought, I've got to talk to somebody about this because this shouldn't be. And I would, so I would watch this kind of wave kind of come and go, come and go, as we often will with things that happen in our lives. And when the retreat was over, I, I dealt with it. It all worked out okay. Um, but I certainly got to see a lot of my feelings of how things should be. And um, the, uh, the director of IMS came to us and gave us a Donna talk. And so afterwards I asked him on the side, I said, how did this happen? Well, first of all, they didn't know when it was going to be. He, made, he said, they said they were going to come. We had no idea when. So we didn't want to tell you there was going to be a problem because there might not have been any kind of a problem. And secondly, it was to have taken two days. And it ended up just taking longer than they thought it was going to take. So the fact is that with all of my kind of excitement and outrage about it, uh, there it was much different. As it often is, things that really bother us oftentimes are much different when you really look at them, than we think they're going to be, or that they are. So our, our, um, the fixed schedule, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, eating. Uh, there's a rest period usually. And um, small, very modest room. We consume what's offered and when it's offered. Uh, casual and simple attire, as I mentioned. And the entertainment ends up being the mind. And it's an amazing thing to watch. It's an amazing thing to watch. Tan Jeff, who's a, a monk here, comes here usually in April. I don't know if any of you have ever met him, but Tanisaro Bhikkhu is his full name. Bhikkhu means monk in the Pali language. He, uh, he once said, when you look at your mind, if this were a movie, would you pay to get in? <laughs> and the answer is for sure, No. If you ever notice the mind as it's kind of going on its thing, it's usually highly repetitious, usually something that's quite extraneous or not necessarily not necessary, often something that kind of stirs us up. You know, it kind of it's not necessarily good food for the mind, it's something that might agitate us, as I said with the two weeks of the, the sounds, you know, of the, the construction. Um, and it's it usually it's not necessary to be even thinking about what you're thinking about at this point. So I thought that was a lovely way of putting it, you know, if this were a movie. And yet we do it over and over and over again. 
and you get to start seeing some of this. It's, it's pretty amazing. And frankly, I think it's better to, first of all, when we're, we're looking at our mind, is to see it as often laughable, because it really is. It really is. Not always. At times, the mind can be bringing something back that's very important to be addressing in some way. It might be something highly important, but the retreat gives us a chance to kind of kind of tease that out and decide, is this something that's really important? Is this something that's not really important? And do I address it now? Do I address it later? Or do I address it when I leave the retreat? So, um, as I said, commitment to stay for the duration, that's a very important thing to think about. So, we're setting aside, as I said, we don't have to use the word renouncing. That's a decision that we might make. By the way, the Buddha mentioned that um, the most important thing is not take other people's words for things, but really look at it yourself. Does this make sense to you? Is this something that works for you? So any of these things that happen, it's really important that we look at it from our own perspective and really see, was this valuable? What did silence mean to me? What does silence mean to you? You know, it's, it's, it's a very individual thing. So what do we receive when we set aside these items? And they're pretty significant. We get the wonderful opportunity to work closely with a teacher, and sometimes teachers. The longer retreats actually had five teachers, and we would have a, an interview every uh, third day, twice a week for 15 minutes with two different teachers. So you get two different perspectives on what's happening, not always the same thing. One of the things, the reasons we, I, I really wanted to go to IMS was to get away from everybody that was here and just to have new teachers that I have never had before. So what ended up happening, which is terrific, is Andrea was one of the five teachers. <laughs> and when I saw that, I was so disappointed. But once again, I found out how valuable it was to have one of my teachers be somebody who really knew my things, you know, my various obsessions and things that concern me. And it was very useful to have somebody there who really understood a lot about my mind psychology. <clears throat> so what comes with that are, first of all, the teachings, which is really quite wonderful, and a Dharma talk usually each day. Um, the experience of having been on so many retreats, as all those teachers had, which normalizes things that could really bug you, as in repetitive rhythms. And what was happening for me for probably oh, four weeks out of the six is this rhythm would come into my head. And it happened regularly throughout the day. And about one weekend when I was about ready to just, you know, <laughs> have a fit... Uh, along with the construction projects, of course. I mean, it sounds really dismal, but it really isn't long run. One of the people in the room raised their hand and asked about this song, this jukebox version of, there was about five or six songs that were coming to this person. And um, the teacher, once again, experienced. They've done it all. They've had all the experience almost that you could possibly imagine having. One or another of those teachers will have had something. So the teacher, first of all, said, how many of you are having some form 
of music or something that seems to come back again and again. And out of like 85 people, I would say three-quarters raised their hand. Three-quarters of the people had some kind of a song thing going. The mind is a thought machine. It simply is. And it's also obviously a jukebox. (laughs) It just does its thing. Now, not everybody has it. I'm not trying to plant this into your head for this to happen to you. (laughs) But it often will happen. Now, interestingly, it wasn't only the do-do-do-do-do, but when I would go, it was like something like that. You know, it wasn't exactly that. But anyway, so all the people. Then, then the teacher described how on this one retreat, he had, as I said, this entire jukebox of songs. They would just sort of play. I don't know how many of you are old enough to know the jukebox, but anyway, you'd hit different numbers, you know, and then the, the record would come in, come down and play, and next one, next one. He had like five or six songs that would happen over and over and over again on this particular retreat. But, uh, by the way, that doesn't mean incessantly. Just, you know, it might happen for 10 minutes, not 15 hours a day. I don't want to give you the idea that it's a long, long time if you haven't done this, um, haven't done a retreat before. Um, interestingly, um, uh, what the other song that came to me was the September song. Now, the retreat started in September and ended in October, I don't know how many of you, once again, are old enough to know the September song. But the song basically goes, there's a long, long way from June to December, and the days grow short as you reach September. The days trickle down to a precious few, November, December. And these few precious days, I won't sing it, I won't bore you with that, I'll spend with you. These precious days I'll spend with you. And... It kept coming to me as I was walking down these beautiful country lanes in Massachusetts, which made kind of sense because the colors were changing and all of that. And I realized that obviously what I'm thinking about here is that I'm getting older. And I realized how important it was. Many positive things came of that song, quite honestly. Just the recognition of aging, the decision to at least temporarily let my hair go gray, Gil calls it wisdom coming out, so we'll have to see what happens with that. (laughs) But anyway, um, the fact that I was very grateful that my husband was also practicing and a person who is is a person on this path, of the Buddhist path, and um, that, in fact, there's only so much time. So that song was actually kind of an important song. So interesting and teaching kind of things can come from repetitive things that happen. And that's why I think it's so important not to get kind of stirred up, but just let them happen and see if something is um, revealed to you about any repetitive thing that comes up. Guidance and encouragement. Teachers are wonderful for that. One of the things I found was an inability to avoid taking photos. I mean, it is so beautiful there. And the trees are changing, and they're starting to change, and they change more and more. There's a pond about a half a mile away with reflections into the pond, and I couldn't resist. But I realized that I had to confess to Andrea that I was taking these pictures. (laughs) I didn't want to bug the other retreatants by, you know, be standing there like Walt Disney or something, you know, taking pictures. But I told her, and she said, oh, well... What's, why are you taking, you know, just, do you know, are you thinking about why are you doing this? What is your mindfulness like when you're doing it? Now that was really the key. Because 
there really was no mindfulness when I was doing it. <laughs> Until she said that to me, and I started really thinking about, you know, understanding more, why was I doing it? I think sort of trying to keep beauty, you know, just, just kind of have beauty for my own and, you know, to own something that was so precious and lovely. The idea that maybe I'd get the perfect reflection. At one point, the leaves were kind of floating, literally, over about one-fourth of the pond, the fallen leaves. They were kind of making all kinds of... So I was, and then there was, of course, puddles with reflections. So I was just really getting carried away with you know, the artistic part of this. And then I noticed there was a lot of me in this, that I'd be taking these pictures and they're all so terrific and maybe some of them won't be. Oh no, that's not very good. I'll delete that immediately. You know? <laughs> but anyway, it was not really something that I should be ashamed of, number one. I never did it when other people were around because that really would not be right. That would have been in some way violent. And frankly, I did it in a more mindful way as after speaking with her about it. And some days, I didn't take the camera with me. So, um, not, you know, thinking that you go into an interview because you have to be just, say just the right thing and, you know, that you'll be not considered, you know, but won't be judged, is so extraneous from really getting the benefit you can out of the teachers at the retreat. The more honest you are with what is going on, believe me, they've heard it all. <laughs> and it's helpful to kind of share with them what's go- going on for you. Um, I found that very valuable. When I first would go to retreat, other retreats, I was very careful. And, you know, once I had a retreat with Joseph Goldstein, it was like, oh, my, I've got to really have these fabulous things to say. It was very, the suffering connected with trying to prepare for a, an interview with a teacher is just, it can be amazing. Or just go in there and, you know, see how it goes. And, uh, so I encourage um, doing it as, as easefully as you can versus preparing. You know, the teachers, I don't know how you feel about it, but Andrea, to me, and other teachers, they're wonderful examples of what happens with consistent practice. And so you get to see, you know, something that um, a human that's, that's really on the trail with you, and they care about you, but they also have really paid their dues in a lot of ways, and they continue to do that. Andrea is on retreat right now at IMS, I believe. I think she's still there. But um, there's a tremendous commitment on the part of our teachers, which is something that we get so much back from when they do come back or when they're with us. Um, It's not in any way to idolize them because I don't think that's what they want at all, but just the example of what comes with consistent practice. So that's a wonderful thing as far as in return from retreats. Another one... Which it, I, you just can't imagine enough about this. It's the opportunity to observe the nuances of the mind. There frankly is no better time or way to do that than a retreat. And uh, as I said, I'm going to talk more about how we can do this, some of this on our own without going on retreat, um, official retreat. <clears throat> the content of the mind, the tendencies, the kind of clings and obsessions, uh, habits of the mind... One of the first things for me that I notice is the confirmation of my reality. That's what the mind does a lot of. I know something is true, and I find myself just proving that that, what I think, is absolutely true. And 
one of the astounding things that happened on this retreat, uh, I had a yogi job of sanitizing the dishes. So kind of, they were already rinsed off, but rinsing, rinsing them more and then putting them into this 185 degree heat when it was 95 outside. So that was interesting all by itself. It was very hot in there for much of the time. And so one day I was, I was doing these, these dishes and then putting them back in place. <clears throat> and um, I turned around and this woman was like standing there and she's like crying, not real crying, but making a face like she's crying. And so my inclination, my tendency is the helper. You know, I've got to do something about this. So I, oh, do you, oh, shh, shh, no, no talking. Anyway, okay. and so, but then she continued with this same face of how sad she was. I, I had no idea what was wrong. So I just, okay, I won't say anything, but observing what was happening for me with this woman who wouldn't communicate with me, but yet was willing to give me this kind of a face, you know, it was pretty interesting. And just seeing that need or desire to learn, first of all, what's going on, what's going on, and understand what's happening here, but also trying to help, when obviously there was not help that was wanted here. It was more like you've done the wrong thing, frankly, (laughs) the way it seemed. But anyway, I finally realized what had happened was there was this green gooey dish, and so I took it and cleaned it, and it was right by all, it was with all the dirty dishes, and it was apparently some green nutrient thing that she drank. And so I thought it was just, you know, something that was supposed to be cleaned. And I really felt badly, but it was right with all the dirty cups and all, you know, things that were ready to get cleaned. So she left it there, I guess, temporarily when I was turned the other way, and I turned this way just in time for a good Dharma lesson. Um, but here's the good, here's the interesting. To me, this is the most interesting part of it. First of all, observing those tendencies for myself. But the next day, at breakfast, I caught myself right in the middle of finding something about her to show what a kind of foolish person she was. I was watching her purposely to find something wrong with what she was doing. And it was, it was so amazing to me that it's just not something I would have done before. But it was like kind of the judge and jury thing. I knew she was kind of a, not, she was a hard person to deal with and I was going to prove, oh, look at the way she's handling those dishes or the way she's choosing her food or whatever it was. And it was just so astounding that to see these kinds of things is really, it's really quite wonderful. And frankly, it's freeing in a way. Um, and it's, it's, once you see it, see certain things like on retreat or off retreat, really many of these things you can see off retreat, but it was so freeing to me to realize that, first of all, she's just a person like I am, but I'm, I'm doing something just as kind of unusual or wacky as she's doing by doing what I... So we're both in the same... We're just part of the same dance, only we're different partners. You know, she's got her part in it, and I've got my part in it. And it was, it was pretty interesting, actually. Um... I also totally knew at this retreat who James Baraz's wife was. James Baraz is a teacher, and he was one of our five teachers. He's over in Berkeley, wonderful teacher. And his wife was there. I saw on the list, mind you, we're totally in silence at this point, her name is Jane. And when I looked at her, I thought, how could she possibly be his wife? She doesn't look like she's having any fun on this retreat. Oh, she must not like that he's a meditation teacher. 
And she's so skinny, and he's sort of full-sized guy. How could they, you know, how could they possibly get along? They don't have the same interest in food. She's not having a good time. She's crying. Oh, that must mean I created a whole identity around, in six weeks, Jane Baraz. And when we broke silence after six weeks, and we went through our names, of course the woman was not Jane Baraz. So <laughs> I had completely created this whole thing about who she was, and of course she wasn't. So it was just, and of course I had to say that in the group, people loved it. I mean, that's, that's part of it too, is that when you do break silence, that's such a beautiful time, really, when, when you do, because you get to start, start seeing one another as they really are, like you know, what people are kind of like as human beings, instead of these images that you have or these things that you build up about them. So that was pretty, pretty interesting at least. But it's just like this thought machine thing and also the movie, you know, just creating movies. And it, the mind just does these kinds of things. Planning, uh, comparing, assuming that that construction was going to go on forever. Um, and of course, all of this, what does it create? Suffering over and over and over again. Um, let's see. Pract- oh, Having the ability to practice uncharacteristic behavior. That's something you can do very safely in a retreat. So one of the things somebody suggested that I might want to do was to bring some chocolate and just set it out. And of course we don't have chocolate. is not served at the retreat. There's dessert, but nice pieces of, you know, chocolate (laughs) are not served. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. So it was kind of fun to clandestinely, I took a plate, went up to my room, broke up all these pieces and put them kind of nice on a platter and then came back downstairs when nobody was there. That was sort of interesting too because I didn't want anybody to know that I had done this. So I could just sit there. So I sat at the table that would be viewing this and some people, I had, there was a little note on there, kind of a humorous little note about the, cat, about the chocolate and some people would chuckle and some people would pick it up and just quickly put it in their mouth and eat it really fast because they hadn't had any chocolate for three weeks. The chocolate type people, you know. Some people just passed it by. It wasn't interesting to them at all. And um, one person took it and just... One person kind of took it and kind of hid it. Maybe they had taken two. I don't know. But anyway, they, they, they took it and just kind of didn't show it at all. And one person took it. And then... I was, it's wonderful to be able to watch this and then just put it next to their plate. And so I watched them several times during this, uh, the food part of that, that uh, meal. And when they ate it, it was with such relish. You know, little pe- it wasn't that big, maybe about that big, but they took it just little bit by little bit and just really enjoying it. And it was so wonderful to create that much happiness in people without them knowing where it came from. You know, it was just, it was kind of fun to be part of that. And so often when we give, it's with some kind of hope of return, right? What kind of gift will I get in return for whatever it is? And so that was a wonderful gift somebody gave me because I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that if they hadn't suggested it. So it was really quite lovely. Um, The yogi job is really an interesting thing because, first of all, I think it keeps you somewhat grounded in terms of, okay, each day you do something at a certain time. 
And so you don't kind of go off too far into the, into the ethers here. Um, and it's somewhat of a tether to your regular life when you do have responsibilities. If you had no responsibility at all, it wouldn't be that valuable. I've already given you a good example of one of the things that happened to me as a result of my yogi job. But one of the things I also, a yogi job can get, allow you to do is to obser- observe some of your patterns around not thinking, but activity. You know, do you create kind of an identity that you're the night dishwasher and, and sanitizer? Uh, do you kind of think, well, you're the very best one ever? Uh, do you have problems with doing it? And sometimes you have a yogi job with somebody who, um, who uh, you talk with, and you need to talk, but you talk only in very, you know, very um, measured way. You don't just talk like gossip or something. You have reasons to talk, and so it gives you an experience with that if you have a yogi job with more than one person. When you're alone, um, that's not the case. So I could kind of see the longing that I had in a way, to have a job where I would have talked to somebody. And I, I wanted the socialization, you know, so it gave me an opportunity to see that. Gee, I wish I could have talked to that person. Um, so, how do we go on retreat from mindlessness when we're at home? I'll give you some examples. One thing we can do is simplify. Simplifying our schedule, simplifying the tasks that we have to do, simplifying our shopping, simplifying our dress. There's lots of ways in which we can simplify, which we might learn on retreat, but which we don't necessarily you know, do at home. Uh, and yet we can. Clean out the closet, get rid of things that you really don't need anymore. There's a tremendous feeling of lightness about that. And, but doing it mindfully. You know, maybe you put some things aside for, you know, and decide you know, in two weeks, yes, I will get get rid of those things, or maybe I won't. So it gives you a chance to, in some ways, simplify your life. Um, pondering, pondering first, and then possibly setting aside certain tasks, certain actions, and quite honestly, certain people in our lives. We may realize that there's some people that we simply cannot spend the kind of time we've spent with. I talked to somebody last evening and uh, she found out that there was a family member that she simply could not keep going in the way she was going with. She had to kind of set a boundary with this person because it just was not working, either for the person or for her. So on retreat, it gives us an opportunity to to ponder some of those things. We have a, a time away from all of it. And so we can start, when we're in a, a retreat situation at home, start looking at some of these things and pondering them and realizing And once again, the set-aside, I prefer that concept to renouncing. It doesn't have to be final. We can try things, just like this gray hair thing, you know. I mean, I'm not sure (laughs) if I'm going to keep my gray hair. You don't have to make a decision that's for the rest of your life. Right now, I'm sort of thinking I'm going to, and it's a pretty awkward time right now with the way it is at this point. But um, I don't have to decide right now. Decisions don't have to be forever. We can try things out. Once again, that would be the Buddha's advice, that try these things, see for yourself, don't assume you know, that you have to do something in a certain way and keep it in that certain way. Um, limiting the use of internet, texting, email, various things like that. Uh, I find that one of the things that's very helpful for me is deciding to not answer the phone on ring one 
or ring two, choose a ring time, maybe four rings, and then you'll answer it. Or maybe it's time for you to let the phone go into the voicemail, which is fine too. Unless you're really expecting somebody and need to talk to somebody, you can try that because we learn from doing that. We learn from not answering it on ring number one. We also have the opportunity to get ready for whatever is at the other end of that phone. We have a chance to kind of settle ourselves for the interaction that we're going to have. Whereas if we just pick it up and and go, you know, we don't have the opportunity for that. So that can be very, very useful. Um, Not answering every question right away. You know, you might be in an interchange with somebody, and frankly, you need to think about that thing they've asked you to do. You need to ponder it some. So that really is a way to be mindful in our lives, equivalent to what we would do on a retreat, have the opportunity to think about something before we act upon it. So as we do more of that, it kind of puts us more in our own body, in our own real what, what works for us and what will be best for us and what will be the most skillful thing for us to do. Um, I find, we find in our home, that find, having a consistent place where you meditate is extremely important. I don't know how many of you have that, but it's kind of like going into the meditation hall, deciding you know, where it's going to be and having a little special design it in some way that it's best for you in that place. That I find, and we find, that can be very useful. And it's something that we leave all the time. And we don't, it's not like a place where you go to. It's right in the living room, and it's always there. So even when you're not sitting, it's a reminder of that part of your life. So that, that's something that Jeff and I prefer, my husband and I prefer. You might want to have something that's really very cloistered and away from everything else. It depends upon your lifestyle. Um, and of course a certain time of day can also be useful when I first started meditating I did it at night and it just didn't work because I would always fall asleep I find earlier in the day is much better for me but we all have to decide for ourselves what works best and sometimes I mean Joseph Goldstein said even sitting on the cushion or on the chair or whatever wherever you sit for two minutes can be valuable to just collect yourself So it doesn't have to be 25 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever every single time. Um, But a consistent place and time of day can be useful. Choosing a mindful task. This is something that Andrea taught us. Has she talked about this much in this class? I don't know. But it's really useful to have something that that is your mindfulness bell, shall we say. Like she has a mindfulness in daily life retreat uh, that she'll be doing in February again. And I highly recommend that. It's a wonderful one-week time, and you choose a task that you'll be mindful for, like I have chosen going through doorways, and it took me about uh, 15 times of getting in and out of my car before I realized there was a door in the car. <laughs> so, but I did eventually, and then I did remember the door. You know, and then kind of, what do you call a door? Is that a door? You know, I'd start thinking, is that really a door, or is that an archway? So kind of the mind and all the interesting things it does. <clears throat> Possibly, instead of the television and the radio, listen to audio dharma or dharma seed. There's a wonderful talks on both of those entities. Dharma seed, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the one that IMS has. Uh, and it's a beautiful uh, website. And the titles, you can kind of tell. Um, Ajahn Chah, one of the original teachers in our lineage from Thailand, is on dharma seed. 
and from the 80s, I think, or the 70s when he was still alive. So there's some wonderful, wonderful talks on Dharma Seed as well as on Audio Dharma. And so rather than listening to the news, I think you'd probably off, we'd often be more inspired or better off by listening to a talk. And then I think key for me has been to forgive myself the moments of mindlessness. And I had one last night. And uh, we, didn't, we had, actually had Christmas yesterday because of some illness with people and so on. And I realized I was getting more and more testy, more and more testy with my sister. And uh, I now know what I need to do. I need to call her today, you know, and, and talk to her about it. Um, but forgiving yourself, first of all, and then knowing, is there some action you need to take? Or is there not an action you need to take? Maybe it's an internal action. Maybe it's the next time you are in that particular situation. But forgiving ourselves is exceedingly important. And frankly, not just a couple of times, over and over again. Because if we don't forgive ourselves, we have a much harder time, I think, in adjusting or making changes in our lives. So um, I recommend retreats. I recommend them at home when you're here uh, in the regular world. Uh, and I'd love to entertain any questions at this point that you might have or comments or suggestions or ways in which you practice your mindfulness at home. Anybody have any questions or wonderments or suggestions? Arthur always... Oh, good. (laughs) Are you scratching your head? (laughs) You have a question <laughs> or something or comment. doesn't have to be a question. Comment or question. I, I was just writing down uh, many things you've mentioned. Can you hear me? Yes. Hear. Okay. Um, I have tried for a long time to find uh, a consistent place and mm. time mm-hmm. to meditate. And it's, uh, it seems like it's something that my... Uh, uh, mind takes up as a challenge, like, sure, just try that one, and uh-huh. it's not going to work. <laughs> and I don't know why. We have a you know, fairly big house, but uh-huh. I, I've tried to make certain parts um, thinking that was going to work. It has never worked. Is okay. there something that I'm really glaringly doing wrong um, doing this? Maybe you should try not just searching for it and just sit on a regular chair and see what happens with that. I mean, just kind of take it new. Instead of trying to find this place, maybe just sitting on a regular chair, you know, at the dining table or something and see Uh how that feels, you know. I mean, you could do that. Because, um, as I said, what we have found is a place that's right in the midst of things where there's a reminder of that all the time. We don't have a really large house, you Mm -hmm. know. It's it's, uh, it's not so that the living room area is, is very much there all the time. And so we have a little Buddha there, and I really like him, you know. <laughs> he reminds me of uh, good times being there. And there's a candle there. Candle, a, a candle can sometimes be nice, too, because it's the light or the mm-hmm. knowledge that comes with that. Um, I don't know, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't obsess about it, that's for sure. I wouldn't, you know, end up having suffering over that. That, that wouldn't be a good idea. Right. But um, I don't know what else to say other than trying a few things, maybe even trying something that seems like off, off beat or something. Mm-hmm. I know Joseph really uh, emphasized this and we had a seven-day retreat with him several years ago. 
of never underestimate just the fact of sitting and just settling yourselves, self, mm-hmm. can be very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yeah, thank you. I yeah. think I have been sort of um, maybe obsessing about it yeah. and just let it go. And That's kind of what it happens. sounded, because you've done, der- you know, maybe yeah. looking for the perfect thing, that might be something I would do. You know? yeah. I don't know if that's for you, if that happens for you or not, but uh-huh. sometimes we can create suffering with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. This is really, really interesting today. Um, I appreciate what you've said. I've, I went to one half-day retreat so mm-hmm. far, because um, ah. I'm fairly new to practicing, and um, it was challenging, because I was, I was cranky before I went there about uh, something else. Mm-hmm. And I just was trying to sit with my crankiness and and after, you know, the first sitting, it seemed to be, you know, I seemed to have worked that out. But um, it was pretty tough, you know, yeah. doing, yeah. it was a 45-minute sitting, then a walk. Right. 45 walk and then 45 sitting. Yeah. Um, is that normal? Is this, is this something that it takes time? Is it a good idea just to do the short retreats in the beginning and work your way up? Or I have actually heard both ways of that. For me, until I actually put the pedal to the metal and did it, it was harder to do what you're saying, which is the shorter retreats. And I've heard some people that say they never would have done it if they hadn't done like a half-day retreat. Either can be valuable. One of the things I like that Gil says about this is that you can't expect the mind to go from 60 to zero in 45 minutes, you know. You can certainly expect to learn from what it's doing as as it's doing whatever, but you know, it doesn't really settle completely, really immediately. For some people, it does. I happen to have a pretty busy mind, you know, so it doesn't settle quickly. And it also settles in spurts, too. So sometimes I like to celebrate those a little bit instead of assume that it's always supposed to go on this trajectory from, you know, being really busy to being really as quiet as possible, because it kind of moves around. The mind doesn't always necessarily just go in a trajectory always to where we want it to go, you know. So it kind of depends. But I've heard both ways. And for me, we really thought that this six-week retreat was possibly would be our last. But believe it or not, when it was over, my husband even had a plan. He he brought books with him just in case he couldn't deal with it, you know. We didn't have a car, you know, we came with this van from the airport. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, uh, he, he wasn't sure what was going to happen. I wasn't either. We had just had a two-week retreat earlier with Andrea, which was very hard for him. I had a better retreat than he had. So, so I was sort of, I was ready for it. I was going to stay, for sure. But I had all this angst about him, too. So, you know, everybody is different. And I found, even in the six weeks, it, there was... Ups, there were ups and downs, like that construction period for two weeks. You know, I, I couldn't believe it, and I had all these scenarios about, you know, having done some management of nonprofits. How could they do this? It's so poorly planned, and then to find out at the end it wasn't planned at all. They couldn't get any commitment, and it was supposed to be two days, not two weeks. You know, and we assume so many things. Somebody gives us a funny look, we think. And really, you know, they've got a pain in their head or something. You know, they have a headache. And so they might have a look that has nothing to do with you, you know? That, that so often happens that the more you know, you know, the more you find out. But that's a long way of saying, I, I think they, it, for me, it, it, it keeps going both directions, even during the whole six weeks. 
But after the six weeks, when we, le- when we left, we pretty much had wished we had stayed for 12. Um, but we had reasons, you know, it would have cost quite a bit with the airlines and all that. Uh, we're both retired, and that makes it easier to do six weeks. Um, but anytime, e- even these experiences at home that I'm describing, I think they're vitally important, and I use them um, a lot. And I'm, Andrea, you know, the, the major teacher here on Tuesdays and many other retreats that she does, it hurts. That whole um, daily life practice retreat is really wonderful. I highly recommend it. Even if you can't, once again, it's morning and evening sits five days in a row, Monday through Friday, and all day on Saturday. And Sunday, at the beginning is a Sunday afternoon, about four out, three hours or something. Even if you can't do every one of them, that's not an issue. You can come some of them and not come to other of them. It's really important to come on Sunday, though, the first, the kickoff, because lots of things are talked about. And I'd say it's quite important to come to a good chunk of, of the, uh, the Saturday one, if you can, the all day. Try it, see what happens. But it's very oriented toward practical life experience, which is the thing that I gravitate toward. To me, if it doesn't have value in our regular life, which is what we live, you know, it's not, not that useful. So I recommend that. Okay, I think it's 11. <laughs> if you want to talk at all afterwards, I'd be happy to answer anything or you know, have a comment or suggestion or whatever. And thank you all for coming a lot.